Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler. And today is another mini episode focused on imposter syndrome. So in the wake of the Halloween content that I put out for October, I decided to give myself a little bit of a break this week and do a mini-sode since they take a little bit less work. And as you know, if you've been listening for a while, the mini-sodes center around either a cognitive bias or a classic experiment in the world of psychology. And since the last mini episode that I did was on an experiment, I'm going to do a cognitive bias this week, the cognitive bias of imposter syndrome. So if you're unfamiliar with the concept of imposter syndrome, essentially what it is, is it is a feeling or set of beliefs that a person who is in maybe a very competitive or high achieving workplace or academic setting And the beliefs are that the person is an imposter, that they don't belong there, that they don't um, possess the skills necessary to do the job or hold the role that they have. And it really is a quite distressing bias to have, as there is very few things you can say to a person who's experiencing imposter syndrome to essentially convince them that they do deserve to be there. So I thought for this episode, I'm actually just going to focus on the first article where imposter syndrome was acknowledged or recognized. There's a lot of research about this that's more modern, um, but I wanted to kind of go back to the roots of imposter syndrome to talk about how it was originally described to kind of highlight the differences in how we think about it now. Um, and then give you a little bit of an overview of, of how you can work with imposter syndrome to maybe loosen the hold that those beliefs may have on someone. As always, I'm not your therapist. I'm just providing you with some additional information. And this imposter syndrome can be a really good topic to talk about with a therapist. So if you are listening to this episode and start to identify with some of the things I'm talking about, I highly recommend that you maybe seek out your own therapy or seek out a supportive provider who you can talk to about some of this stuff. Okay, so diving into the meat of the episode, I'm going to go through this article. Well, not really go through. I'm going to summarize it nicely. (laughs) Um, This article called The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women, Dynamics and Therapeutic Interventions. 
And this article is by Pauline Rose Clance and Suzanne Ament Imes. And these two women are really are like the foremothers of imposter syndrome, or they called it imposter phenomenon. They were pretty much the first authors to officially like put a title on it. And I think it's interesting that they were the first ones to do it because they worked with a very specific population. And it was out of this population that this idea came out of. And so both Clance and Imes worked with individual patients and taught classes with women students or women patients who were very high achieving. Um, their like individual patients or their the clients they saw in their clinical practice were tended to be women who held like multiple degrees or had like pretty prestigious jobs. And then the women they encountered in the classes they taught were grad students who were in a higher level program like getting PhDs. And so these are women who are in positions where you're essentially like at the top of your game, you're in a very like high achieving careers or in academic institutions that are, you know, requiring a lot of ambition and achievement out of you. And they began to notice that the women they talked to either in their clinical practice or at their classes were unable to have a set an internal sense of achievement or success. They, you know, had impressive CVs, but when you talk to the women, they would say things like, I just got lucky to be here, or um, I don't quite know how I got this job or got into this program. And when talking to these women, they discovered that the women would try to find as much evidence as possible to prove that they were not worthy of their role, award, or degree. So essentially, when you would talk to someone experiencing imposter syndrome, they're trying to sell you on like, why I don't belong here why I'm not worthy of this achievement. And and Clance and Imes began to notice this popping up multiple times. And so when you see stuff like that start to happen multiple times, it's time to do a little deep dive. Uh, And so out of their kind of observations of these clients and these students, they developed the theory of imposter syndrome or imposter phenomenon, um, where the person does not believe they are intelligent or skilled and instead believes they have fooled the people around them into thinking that they are smart, skilled, etc. And within imposter syndrome is this underlying fear that one day someone is going to figure out that they don't belong there, that they are an imposter, and expose them. So people experiencing imposter syndrome, which to be clear is not a diagnosis, it's not something that you'll find in the DSM, it really is more of a cognitive bias, um, but I think it having the term syndrome makes it seem like it's a diagnosis. It's not something you can like bill insurance for treatment of, uh, but I think it can often be a part of a larger diagnosis or disorder, um, primarily probably like anxiety or depression that comes with more negative con- cognitions. It's just that with people experiencing imposter syndrome, it is this very specific negative thought about oneself that one is in a role that they are not worthy of having. And it's a little bit different than like, I'm a failure. Like this thought being that I'm here, I made it to this point and I am going to be found out that I don't deserve to be here. Now, the original author authors attribute uh, imposter syndrome developing in women to this idea that's had some support in the literature that women are more likely to attribute their accomplishments to either sheer luck or intense effort, whereas men tend to attribute their accomplishments to an internal sense of ability. And so they 
hypothesized that the reason why we were seeing imposter syndrome pop up in these women or in women almost exclusively was that women through like socialization and like cultural ideas of gender tend to say things like I I got very lucky or I had to work very hard and essentially locate the like sense of accomplishment outside of themselves or outside of like an internal characteristic. So women may be more likely to say, you know, I had to work very hard to do this thing and not say like I'm inherently good at this thing. Whereas men tend to attribute their accomplishments to this like internal sense of I can do it. Whether I work hard or not, whether I try or not, I can do this thing. And that imposter syndrome develops within that um, shift in focus of where the ability comes from. And when you center it like outside of yourself or outside of your internal sense of ability, then imposter syndrome can develop. Now, I think that in more modern research uh, that's not from the 1970s, um, you'll see that men and women can all experience imposter syndrome and that particularly men with non-privileged identities such as men of color or gay men are likely to experience this phenomenon as well. And it can really come down to this idea of like minority stress where people who are in a marginalized identity such as women, people of color, queer people or trans people when you're in that marginalized identity and in a space that's typically dominated by privileged identities like white people or men, it can feel like one is an imposter there because no one else looks like me or, you know, I, I may be the first of my group to make it to this place and everyone else here seems to know the culture, know the like implicit ways of behaving. And I, I don't know that because it's not my culture. And through that can breed this idea of like, maybe I shouldn't be here. Maybe I am an imposter and they're going to figure it out one day that I don't actually deserve this. I also think in, in my personal opinion that the narrative around affirmative action can be a contributing factor to um, imposter syndrome in particularly people of color. And that this narrative that we have in our like U.S. culture that affirmative action is a way to like just fill a quota and get like you know lower achieving people into private or public institutions is very damaging and that sort of like cultural narrative can be a voice you may internalize and hear saying like you don't really belong here you just got picked because your last name sounds like a certain ethnicity or you got picked because we needed more women on this team and that voice that kind of internalized narrative becomes the evidence that the person uses to prove that they're an imposter. So the the person experiencing imposter syndrome is probably doing the most work to prove why they don't belong there. And the reality is is that the people around that person probably are not paying attention uh, or don't think that they're an imposter. It really is a like internal um, experience. So while I, you know, commend Clance and Ames for developing this theory and identifying this phenomenon, I think that it's a little less black and white dichotomy between the sexes and that there, it is entirely possible for men to experience imposter syndrome, whether they think that they have an internal sense of ability or not, um, and that it really does depend on like the field, the context of the uh, maybe like corporation or institution that the person is working in. There's, there's lots of other factors 
that play a role and even things like cultural narratives around who belongs in which spaces contribute to imposter syndrome. In the original 1978 study, Clance and Imes identified a few things that they thought of as like the origin for imposter syndrome and one of them was having to do with family dynamics of the women who ended up in these high achieving positions. And so they they found among the women that they were working with that for for about like half or for some of them, um, they were labeled as like the social sibling or relative of the family and compared to another relative in the family who was labeled as intelligent. So this may look like, you know, the person with who develops imposter syndrome was like, oh, you're the funny one. You're the outgoing one. He's so crazy, always jumping around. And your sister is so smart. She's so studious. She's always like, you know, got her nose in a book. And so within that comparison, the the child that was labeled as social or, or you know, funny starts to feel like, well, it, I don't have the inherent characteristics to be smart like my sister. Like this other person in my family has the magic genetic code that made them smart and I don't have that. So I can't be smart. So through the family identifying the children as like each having their own role and inherent characteristics means that later in life, those children who are labeled as like the social or the silly ones have a hard time believing that they can be smart because they've been taught that it is an inherent quality. And if you remember what the point before was that women don't tend to attribute their accomplishments to this internal sense of ability. So if you also socialize a girl child to think that not only am I not inherently smart, but it wouldn't matter what my inherent characteristics are. The only thing that matters is how hard I work. And I, there's only so much you can do to work hard, right? There's, there's always going to be like a limit to what you can do. So that is that kind of gap is where imposter syndrome can develop. The other like section of women that they identified was the opposite, where being the child who was like the golden child who was told that she was the smartest, she was the, you know, best behaved, everything that she did was perfect. And being told that as a child, and then as they started to grow up, maybe into becoming a teenager, realizing I'm not perfect, I'm actually not the smartest in my class, I don't know how to do things, um, but not being able to kind of reconcile being labeled inherently smart and achieving with having some difficulties in intelligence or achievement. I think this one is a little bit more clear how it relates to imposter syndrome because you can imagine a child growing up being told by everyone, you're so smart, you're so smart, and the child is sitting there going, I feel very dumb, I don't feel very smart at all, these people must be lying to me. And then when you grow up, you kind of carry that with you of like, Yes, in a way, people are still telling me I'm smart because I'm in graduate school or because I got this job or I got this promotion and I still can't believe them. So I'm going to be convinced that I really don't belong here, that everyone still must be lying to me about how smart I am because I don't feel very smart. I struggled to get here. And that's why I think kind of a side note is that more modern parenting styles tend to focus on giving children like compliments or validation in ways that don't attribute their actions to internal traits. So rather than telling a child, you're very smart, you, you when they bring home like an A on a test, you can tell a child like, I can tell you worked very hard on that. Your hard work has paid off. Or um, 
I can tell that you're very proud of that grade. That doesn't set the child up to believe that the only reason they got this accomplishment is because they happened to have the right recipe of characteristics and that it wasn't anything to do with like their work or their effort. Again, that's just an observation. I'm not giving you parenting advice. Um, but Clance and Ames so like had had a notice that the women they were seeing who were experiencing imposter syndrome could either come from from either way. So it really was like a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because you could tell a child that they were very smart and they might still develop imposter syndrome, or you could not tell a child they're very smart and they might still develop imposter syndrome. It's essentially like there are multiple pathways to the same outcome. Now, in their original study, they uh, also acknowledged some types of treatment that might be useful for helping people who experience imposter syndrome. And they also were very clear that it's not a diagnosis, but is still something that is a uh, focus of therapy. And so first of all, they noticed that it's not going to be the presenting problem or the reason why someone comes to therapy. It's going to be very rare that someone shows up for therapy and is like, I'm here for my imposter syndrome. Um, because typically someone experiencing imposter syndrome feels very sh- ashamed of it and is trying to keep it a secret because if I were to tell you that I feel this way, then you'll find out that I'm the imposter and my worst fear has been realized. So that is a way in which um, it, it may not be immediately apparent if someone is coming to therapy. So it requires some asking around, you know, some assessment of the patient and looking for like, what do they need? What are they here for? And of course, if you are working with someone who's in kind of like a high achieving job, this may be like a, you know, red flag to look out for that there could potentially be some imposter syndrome going on. Uh, Clance and Imes actually recommended group therapy for people experiencing imposter syndrome, particularly when there are multiple people in the group who are also experiencing imposter syndrome, they found that the people could better support each other because they understood what it was like um, and that it relieves some of the shame to know that other people hold these fears in the same way that, that you might. And they also noted that it, it might help the person to kind of see how absurd the beliefs are to be able to see someone else in the group and say like, well, that person, you know, worked as hard as me or went to the same school as me. And I believe that they deserve the role they have. Why don't I believe that about myself? So it's able to kind of like help the the person to juxtapose their beliefs about themselves with someone who's in a very similar situation as themselves. This is a classic um, CBT technique too, to say, uh, like if we're working on negative cognitions or, or negative thoughts to say, what would you say to a friend who was going through the same situation? And typically, everyone is much more gentler to a friend than they are to themselves. So this is just kind of doing that same technique, but in a group of people who have the same experience as you. And you'll start to realize, like, I wouldn't say that to my group member. I wouldn't say the harsh things I say to myself to, you know, this this fellow group member. So why am I saying it to myself? And lastly, Clance and Ives recommended some cognitive inter- interventions that help to disconnect the patient from their negative thoughts about themselves being imposters and the compulsive work behaviors that they would engage in to keep the syndrome at bay. So what they were also observing is that people who were experiencing imposter syndrome would then like take on so much extra stuff at work. So it would work late, you know, take on projects they didn't have the bandwidth for, volunteer for like everything which way in that. 
And that was an attempt to not feel like an imposter by, you know, kind of doubling down and working more, but unfortunately does then contribute to the imposter syndrome because now you've taken on so much work that you can't do. So you still have evidence to say, I don't belong here because I can't handle all this work, even though it's extra work than anyone in your role would be expected to take on. So Clance and Imes were recommending help the the people to identify, like, when I have this thought that I'm an imposter, I compulsively do more work or stay later or, you know, take on more tasks and to separate those because the coping skill of compulsively doing more work is making the cycle of negative thoughts and feeling of being an imposter, making it more intense. And that ultimately you would want someone to be able to have the thought, like the thought might still come up of like, I'm an imposter. And instead of engaging in more work to be able to like set their limits and um, set their boundaries with work so that it doesn't tip over into this like compulsive cycle of feeling bad and then taking on more work, which leads to you feeling bad again. They also recommended that patients or people experiencing imposter syndrome keep a record of feedback that's given to them, particularly positive feedback, so that they can go back and read through all of the pleasant things people have said about them and their performance in the past, so that they, when they're kind of going through this argument with themselves of like, here's all the evidence for why I don't belong here, They have a list of evidence for like, here's why you do belong here, because you've been given quite a bit of, you know, positive or impressive feedback about your your performance. Uh, In more modern approaches to imposter syndrome, I have seen recommendations to um, actually give more accurate feedback to someone experiencing imposter syndrome. So to utilize something like the compliment sandwich, where you don't shy away from getting giving critique like constructive feedback to the person with imposter syndrome. And the reason why we wouldn't want to shy away from that is that when you can include the constructive feedback or even what might be called like a critique in with the positive feedback, the person experiencing imposter syndrome might be more likely to take in all of the feedback and to incorporate the positive in because they believe the critique. So this may look like perhaps You've had this experience of if you're in a management position and you have someone you're doing a performance evaluation for and they come in and they're like, I've got five areas of growth for you. Like, I know all the ways in which I'm doing wrong or I want to improve. And then you ask them, like, well, what have you been doing well? And they don't have an answer. Right. Or maybe you're this person. There's no answer for what you're doing well. And so then to like kind of account for that, you start giving them all this feedback about like, well, you do this really well and you're really good at this and blah, blah, blah. That person is not taking that in from you, right? They're not able to like accept the positive feedback. They, they, they're not going to believe it. They may say like, thank you. They're not going to, you know, yell at you, but they're not going to internalize that. So being able to utilize the compliment sandwich, which is, you know, a fantastic technique where you start with a compliment, you put the critique in the middle, and then you end on a compliment. This might make the compliment more palatable to the person with imposter syndrome because they'll hear in the middle the critique that they've already identified in themselves because they're evaluating their like areas of growth or their weaknesses much, much more thoroughly than their areas of strength. You've piqued their interest because they finally hear <laughs> you saying something they agree with, and so they may be more likely to take in the positive as well, or to at least view the positive in a more like realistic or logical way, because it's harder to prove to yourself that it's just fluff or lies when it's rooted in feedback that they, they do believe in. So managing like 
this more accurate or constructive feedback with the positive feedback. I know the poll is to like go over the top with positive feedback. And I'm sure you, you listeners out there, you might have experienced this with friends who say things like, I'm a failure, you know, I'm not good enough. And your pull is to be like, you're amazing. Like, you're my favorite. And I'm not saying you need to structure your friends like uh, they're getting performance evaluations. Um, but it is, I think, important to understand that the like praise or the positive feedback may not always be well received. And so being able to take that perspective when you're talking to someone who struggles with imposter syndrome can help you to, you know, maybe get them to listen to you a little bit more. Be like, I get it. You really, you really feel like you can't do it. And just kind of sitting them with, sitting with them in that feeling. Now, I don't want my manager to sit with me in my feelings. I want my friends to do that. Um, but if you're in like a professional setting, then using that like compliment sandwich or implementing like more um, holistic feedback that does include areas of growth can actually be like quite helpful. Um, and if you're in therapy or seeking therapy, it might be useful to bring this up to your um, provider to say like, you know, I struggle with feeling like I belong at my job or at my school um, and they might be able to deliver some of these interventions for you as well. So that is my episode on imposter syndrome. I think it is a fascinating syndrome and there's definitely lots of more modern research on it, but I thought the original was very interesting and to see how it was born out of this setting of women in these very like high achieving or high accomplishment jobs, not believing that they were worthy of being there. Um, And I just think that's like, it's sad, but it might be still super relevant. Um, So if you're a high achieving girly out there, I hope you have a little (laughs) self-compassion and are able to get some support if you don't believe that you belong there. And if you do believe that you belong there, then you go girl. I'm I'm proud of you. Um, Alrighty. Well, that's it for this episode. I want to say thank you for listening all the way through to the end and I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.